Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Security Management Highlights with your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. If you ask me, it's the most important ingredient to look at, hey, are our staff able, willing, equipped, equipped with the right tools, etc. like, you know, things like working from home or whatever to continue the business, but also mentally and emotionally ready for that. In my heart, I believe that the one community that can affect the most change is, is, is the security industry, you know? And the reason why I feel that, we have more, more presence in, private, in the private security industry than all the law enforcement or first responder communities put together. And we're the ones, as an industry, if we stepped up, I'm sure somebody within our industry can create some type of technology to help with this. You know, we've got plenty of smart minds in our industry, and I think we need to be the ones at the Hill talking about it. You, you get some employees here that are resistant to coaching or learning, or they want to only do things their way. And in those instances, um, it, it really takes a lot more effort and time to ensure that they're going to be successful. Um, but at some point, you also have to rec recognize that if you're spending too much time on one employee um, at, at the expense of all the other employees, um, that's not good for the team or for the organization. All that and more on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. Rinska Gerlings is an internationally known consultant, speaker, and certified business continuity and risk management trainer. She's the founder, principal consultant, and trainer at businessasusual.com.au. Rinska, welcome to Security Management Highlights all the way from Australia. Hey, Chuck. How are you doing? Today, we're going to talk about the wildfires in Australia. It is such a big problem that traditional business continuity plans aren't really working the way everybody predicted. Rinska, tell us what's going on. The state where I live and the state south of where I live, uh, together we had at some stage 110 fires all burning at the same time, uh, out of which... I think 80% were out of control and, and completely not manageable. So um, I guess the, the, the congregation of some of these fires and forming really big fronts uh, created a situation where people were not just uh, able to rely on luck anymore as to, oh, maybe it will, maybe it won't hit my area. It was, it was so broad and, 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 yeah, and widespread in, in certain states especially that it, uh, it became fairly, uh, yeah, uh, fairly well the situation became fairly desperate for for many people and the main part is actually the main problem was uh, they started so early this year so they started about three months earlier than normal our summer has basically just started like a couple of weeks ago and now uh, a lot of the resources you know the firefighting equipment but also the telecommunications infrastructure and all the spare all the backup equipment that we've had to use uh, it's now kind of depleted. There is no spare stock of stuff anymore. And we're still having to go through the next sort of two months um, at the very minimum to, to get through this. So, um, yeah, that's created a lot of challenges for many organizations, uh, small and big, uh, including the governments at, uh, at local, state and uh, national levels. Do catastrophes get to a point where business continuity and best practices just aren't going to work? Do we have to go back to relying on the people themselves being individually prepared. Is that a better model? 
Uh, well, it's certainly part of the ingredients. And in if you ask me, it's the most important ingredient to look at, hey, are our staff able, willing, equipped, equipped with the right tools, et cetera, like, you know, things like working from home or whatever to continue the business, but also mentally and emotionally ready for that. Because if a large scale disaster hits an, a particular area or a family member of someone who is in your plan listed as a key person, well, that family member may be in so much strife that your staff is not able to focus at all on work, even though you've given them the work from home tools and the internet connections and everything else and the laptops. You know, it's you can't expect from people to operate as robots. Uh, and that's uh, that's part of the, the, the mistakes some organizations make. They put staff in there as to, oh, well, we assume that they're there to at least activate this plan. And it, the whole plan is actually focusing on uh, facilities, on buildings and on IT systems. Uh, and for staff, uh, many organizations that I deal with uh, haven't made any backup or any thinking about, hey, if this, not just if the person's not there, but if they're fatigued after a while of struggling through some of these things and helping the business, you know, to, to get back on their feet, you need to also have spare staff in some way, uh, which can be found either within the organization or externally, but it needs to be thought about before it happens. And yeah, like you said, they're the most important ingredient to success. As a business continuity planner, what has been your biggest challenge with these fires? So it's the buy-in, you know, the, the support for and, and the thinking about these solutions is lacking uh, across the world. I do this, this work everywhere in the world. In five different continents, I've worked on this, and it's still, I see everywhere, there is still usually a problem getting people to think, yes, it will happen to me one day. If people tend to think it will probably happen to a competitor somewhere else or in a different village or whatever, and especially fires are a challenge because they are so extremely local. So it can happen to part of a village and the other part of the village is still completely intact, no problems. So that's why people still, I think, have the feeling of, oh, well, you know, why would I make a plan to evacuate all my staff or, or my house and my family? Because the impact of the evacuation is, is, is huge, you know, and also risky, um, you know, leaving your house and your belongings behind and shutting the business for a period of time. But uh, if it then wasn't happen, was if it was uh, false alarm in the end, yeah, it it created all this upheaval for nothing. So that's the the attitude issue I think we have, or the, what do you, how should we call it? You know, the support for the actual scenario is is very low sometimes, and the thinking this might happen to me, that's sometimes not there. Well, let me ask you about that mentality, that state of readiness, I will call it, your mental toughness. Do you mm. find that while businesses may not be prepared like they should, are the individuals within those businesses personally prepared? I find my neighbors way more prepared than the places I work with, individually prepared. Yeah, yeah I agree. Uh, people, well, what's the first priority for any individual is, of course, their family and their right. immediate people they care about and their home and their new car maybe or their dog. I mean, any business needs to understand their second priority and won't be first priority until these other things have been resolved for any staff member or you know or any any individual and um in fact uh we we've seen it in this region in other incidents as well like for example the new zealand earthquakes christchurch quite close to australia um they found that even though they'd equipped staff with all sorts of tools and equipment to to be able to work from home staff were worried about their sister's house being flooded or in this case during the earthquake uh, family of the of, of the sister was living with all of their kids and everything in their home 
of, of your staff member potentially and is that staff member then able to focus or even emotionally able to commit to continuing work so absolutely it's people think about their family their immediate uh, environment first before they think about work workplaces are comprised of individuals that are prepared but they don't translate to the business for some reason that's very interesting yeah absolutely and and you know where the, where it gets interesting where it starts crossing over those two particular things is for example what we found is all the businesses that have employees who are also volunteers in the in the fire service so these employees who are now having to run off and help with the wildfires in australia they are not available at least not to the full extent for doing their other work and that happens when they're working for a larger organization suddenly half the staff members may not be there because they're all volunteers in the fire fire brigade here or if they're running their own little business they're not able to continue uh, earning income for themselves because they're doing all this work as a as a firefighter and that's where yeah business and home get very much uh, you know in, integrated in the sense of the impacts and these are some of the bigger impacts that, that Australia is co coping with at the moment how to deal with all these these knock-on effects for the firefighters who have been volunteering for so many months now we're talking three four five months sometimes and that's uh, that's fairly unusual. We don't we don't have that preparedness, as you said, you know, to, to think along all those those different uh, knock on effects. So, Let, yeah, it's a big a big challenge economically as well, of course. Give our listeners some creative solutions to this. Tell me how we can think outside the box to solve some of these challenges. Yeah, I think the golden rule with all of those is they have to be really validated and tested in the. To, in, in the scale that you're envisioning them to work. So for example, work from home sounds great. If, if your staff regularly, you know, on a one-on-one -on -one basis, you know, sort of go and work from home for a day, that seems to always work. They log on, the system works. But now during a, a wildfire or cyclone, if suddenly 80, 90% of your staff are supposed to work from home, do the system still handle that? Are they equipped with proper secure connections? Are they actually trained properly to log in and utilize those tools? Because only a few of them actually use them on the fly, you know, during their business as usual kind of situation. So uh, that's the first thing, I guess, is really validate those solutions and not having the false sense of security, which most organizations have. As soon as there's something in place, they go, oh, great, no, well, now we can relax, you know, we've got this all built, you know, if something were to happen, we'll, we'll fix it and we can we can live through it. But if they haven't properly validated it and tested it uh, to the degree that it will be necessary to use those tools, you know, it's, it's a false sense of security. And that's a bigger risk, if you ask me, than having no plan at all, because it, it, it removes people standing on their feet straight away, thinking creatively. If they if there's a plan and you know you set and forget and you sort of think oh well you know we'll just I'll just go home and, and log in and everything will be uh, you know beautifully working, and the same with MOUs people write a beautiful letter to um, whether it's a competitor sometimes you know because they have similar equipment as you, or whether it's another organization in the region, and they sort of promise to each other oh well, if something were to hit you we're gonna give you some space and help you out give you meeting rooms and God knows what. Okay, the next thing is the other side, of course, you know, re reciprocates that with a similar sort of uh, sort of letter. And it sits there and it often is not validated, tested, walked through in detail, you know, and, and then you find on the day, yeah, the other organization's busy with something extremely urgent, could be a, a product rollout or, or some sort of other technical issue they're facing. 
and you're turning up there going, hey, we have an MOU. Aren't you going to give me that meeting room and the internet connections and the mobile phones and the, and the spare staff and whatever you promised, you know, but it's an MOU. So it's a usually a best effort basis document and it's often not in, in practice working that well. So once again, uh, when you build these kind of strategies, you need to really think about, okay, what is it going to look like? Can we test it? Are they realistic? Um, and uh, yeah, and, and, and make them super hands-on and practical. I've seen a really good example of it in Kenya one time when I was working for an electricity company there last year, there was a sort of an area BCP. And I've seen that area BCP approach also in Indonesia, a couple of other countries in Asia, where a whole industry park thinks about what equipment do we all need if something were to happen? What firefighting equipment, what ambulance services or medical services, potentially things like generators, etc. And who in our little industry park has those tools? And can we make a plan that we're all helping each other out on an, on an MOU basis if something were to happen? You know, and that's actually then validated and tested properly in, in this particular instance that I'm talking about in Kenya. So these people have actually put it in practice, seen it working, and then be confident in that MOU. Rinska Gerling's founder and principal at businessasusual.com.au. Thanks so much for coming on Security Management Highlights. Thank you, Chuck. Really enjoyed uh, doing the interview and uh, wish uh, everyone in the world luck with their wildfires in the future. The Drone Guy, James Acevedo, CPP, is founder and CEO of Star River Inc., a security consultancy focusing on risk management, unarmed systems, and robotics. James, welcome to Security Management Highlights. Always a pleasure to speak with you, my friend. How are you? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Well, uh, I'm usually pretty good before I speak with you, and now I'm like, oh, here we go again. Drones. We're going to talk about an aerial identity crisis. This is kind of the, the core of what's happening in the drone business, and it's becoming more and more of a problem. To put this in simple terms, we simply are not able to identify all the pilots of all the drones we have, and that presents a serious vulnerability to our security. Define for our listeners kind of what this crisis is now. Well, right now what's going on is there's a, a, a variety of rules or proposed rulemaking that's, that's being sent to the FAA, which is addressing drone identification in the U.S. airspace. Unfortunately, it's become it's it's just a big old mess chuck and i'm not i'm not gonna lie it's an absolute disaster the entire drone industry is fragmented um you have you have a variety of different i guess people that have got their own self-interest and they're trying to you know identify the best way on how to incorporate drone identification i mean there's two schools of thoughts with regards to this you know there's the broadcasting side where the drone you know already has the ability to broadcast its ident identification within the US airspace and then you have the networking or excuse me the networking side which would you know require a variety of different things also the FAA wants the ability to identify drones within the airspace and then the proposed rules are as follows um, they want to be able to collect a variety of data with re with 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 regards to drone pilots and so on but a lot of people feel that these rules aren't going to pass because they kind of contradict the, you know, the, um, what is it? The, uh, the foreign intelligence act, right? So with regards to mass collection in the United States of, 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 uh, civilian data and so on. And the one thing is, is like I said, the entire industry is fragmented and it needs to kind of collect its thoughts and in one voice say, 
um, you know, this is what we need to do. This is how we need to proceed. And the problem is, is that we've only, I think we've only got 60 or 90 days uh, right now to kind of do that public government partnership communication with, with the FAA and so on to try to get our voices heard. And it seems like not very many people are stepping up to the plate. Currently, there's about three, I think about three million drones in the United States versus one million manned aircraft. So you kind of have to, and then 80% of that, um, the 80% of that 3 million is all basically foreign made systems, which is nine, you know, there's a variety of different companies out there. Currently there are three government bodies that are trying to manage unmanned systems, unmanned aerial systems in the United States. So you have the FAA, which is a safety based organization. You have the department of transportation, which regulates a variety of different aspects of airspace in a sense. You have the FCC that regulates uh, what types of signals and so on can be managed within the United States. And then if you have some kind of technology that can jam that, that's a potential danger to first responders and a variety of other things, right? Then you have the FAA, which is the, which is, like I said, the safety side of things. They're trying to manage the airspace in, in, a, in, a, in a fair manner or trying to make sure that flights are safe, essentially, throughout the U.S., then you have the Department of Transportation, and they're trying to also do the same thing along with the FAA. But the problem is, is that all these th all these voices are talking past each other. So how do you counter drone technology currently in the United States? The only people that have the right to 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 deal with this is the um, Department of Homeland Security. You know, there was something like 50 some odd incursions on a uh, on a, on the last Super Bowl, right? So there was a, a couple of, there were some joint operations between government and civilian companies, and they were trying to manage all those types of issues uh, with the last Super Bowl. And it, it worked in a sense because they were able to identify a variety of different groups and individuals that were flying their systems over the, or trying to fly their systems over the stadium. Well, let me ask you this. Are we improperly defining what a drone is? To me, it's not an aircraft. If I land a drone in your house and start sniffing your Wi-Fi, that's a spying device. If I stood on top of your roof and did that, I'd be arrested for trespassing, wouldn't I? Right? I mean, it's the same behavior. It's just a new type of behavior using a device. And I think we have to get away from the fact that these are aircraft. The police helicopter cannot fly 50 feet above my house. They'd be shut down. So why can a drone? So if they're going to be an aircraft, aircraft rules... So the, I guess the question is, are we defining this improperly? If we define it properly, might we have better solutions? You know, the, the, it, it completely depends on your point of view, right? So I, I completely understand what you're saying. You can't have a helicopter fly above your house, but somebody can put a drone above your house. And that's very true. Um, the definition of it being an aircraft, I don't think is the problem. I think the problem lies in how we are rolling out the security aspect of that. And I think we kind of got the cart before the horse. You know, the one thing is, is that everybody's concerned about drones falling out of the sky and people using drones for nefarious activities and so on. All these things should have been addressed at the beginning. Right. Before we started developing rules and regulations and laws and all these different things. I think we needed to address the security aspect right from the go, because as with most, a lot of different technologies that are being developed now, 
you know, Chuck, let's look at it this way, right? Everybody becomes incredibly excited when you go to, you know, CES and you see all these great new things that are coming out, apps and robots and toys and drones and all these great things people are just crazy about. We love our technology. We are addicted to technology. And all these people that are developing the technology, they want to basically be the next big thing. And they're just pushing themselves to develop this tech you know, artificial intelligence and, and fog computing and all these different things. Everybody's pushing and pushing and pushing for innovation, but they're not thinking of the basics, right? They're not thinking of the, they're not thinking of the one thing that, that is critical and that's security. So they're innovating and they're innovating, in my opinion, innovating in a backward sense we can come up with a solution to this a reasonable solution to this if everybody who 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 has a reasonable concept is sitting at a table and can present that concept right and it's listened to we can come up with a solution we can come up with fair rules regulations and laws and the only way we're going to do that is if we have these open conversations. And remember I said at the beginning, the entire drone industry is fragmented. It is. It is an absolute mess. Everybody thinks, you know, everybody thinks somebody else is going to come up with a rule or come up with a law or somebody else is going to come up with the concept. And then every, when they do come up with the concept, then the entire community kind of steps back and says, oh, no, that's not going to work. You're, you know, you're invading our privacy you're you know you're collecting mass data on on pilots and who has access to that information is it going to be law enforcement but if all this information is aggregated and collected and managed who's going to manage it or i mean there's just too many like i said there's too many moving parts i wish i really wish i had an answer for this i really wish i could say this is the way we need to move forward um unfortunately i don't but I believe in, in my heart, I believe that the one community that can affect the most change is, is, is the security industry, you know? And the reason why I feel that is because we outnumber law enforcement five to one. So for every police officer in the United States, there's five security officers. We have more, more presence in private, in the private security industry than all the law enforcement or first responder communities put together. And we're the ones as an industry, if we stepped up and we proposed a variety of different rules and regulations to not only help counter these systems, um, but help manage some of them, I'm sure somebody within our industry can create some type of technology to help with this. You know, we've got plenty of smart minds in our industry, and I think we need to be the ones at the Hill talking about it because this affects our customers. This affects, you know, us, our, our national security. This affects everything that we do. What's a, what's a security guard going to do if he sees a drone flying outside of a building? He's going to call the police. Then what are the police going to do? The police are going to call the FAA. What's the FAA going to do? So you can see that there's this rabbit hole that we end up going down because nobody can do anything <laughs> except for the Department of Homeland Security. That happy note. On that happy note, James, I'm going to say, say thanks for coming on Securities <laughs> Management Magazine. Always great to speak with you. Uh, and we have to speak about it. That's that's the whole point. 
if we stop speaking about it, nothing's going to get solved. So uh, we'll continue the conversation as uh, as this technology progresses. Thanks for coming on Security Management Highlights. No problem. John Torres is the president of Technology Consulting at Guidepost Solutions. Previously, John served as a special agent in charge for Homeland Security Investigations in Washington, D.C. and Virginia. His background includes more than 27 years of experience providing investigative and security management for the U.S. Departments of Homeland Security and Justice, including serving as the Acting Director and Deputy Director of U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Mr. John Torres, welcome to Security Management Highlights. How are you, my friend? I am doing well. My pleasure to be uh, on the air here with you, uh, Chuck. Today, we're going to talk about compelling coaching. Now, that's a very intriguing title. Uh, Tell us what the differences are between coaching and managing. Yeah, I kind of learned that a little bit early in my career, working for a number of different uh, bosses. And what I found myself gravitating towards over the years is that the really good bosses were the ones that were good coaches, the ones that could be good teachers, um, and realize that uh, you know the difference there is you, you can still be a good manager and and you can handle the human resource aspect or the financial aspects, um, but you have to recognize the different abilities of your team and be able to adjust to to maximize the the actual output of of that team. And so, for example, you don't want to put a square peg in a round hole, um, and so someone might not be the type of person who can write very well, but in, in my old job, that, that person might have been a fantastic undercover agent, but then really couldn't write the reports and the pro- for the prosecution aspects. So if you build a team um, and, and utilize all the different aspects and talents of that team, um, as well as be a good teacher and, and bring some of them along, because some people just may not be good at a particular aspect of the job because they haven't been taught. And some of them are, are willing to learn it. I think that's really critical. Is there an even finer line between coaching and mentoring? Seems mentoring maybe is more one-on-one, or is there a little difference there? Uh, there's a little bit of difference. Uh, we've had a number of different mentoring programs set up at different stages of my career. Um, I've been mentored, and I've also served as, as a mentor. And um, I've learned that you, it helps to develop a more personal one-on-one relationship with the person that you are mentoring or being mentored by that, uh, you know, if it works out well and the personalities uh, mesh, um, it ends up being a long lasting uh, career relationship. And so some of my, some of those that have mentored me in the past, I still am in touch with them long, you know, well, well into their retirement age. Um, and then vice versa, some of those people that I've mentored, I stay in touch with and they reach out to me every now and then, even though I'm no longer in the government now. And I think that that is the biggest difference um, in developing a, a mentor type of relationship. Communication is key. I mean, we all get busy. We're all guilty of not being able to communicate effectively uh, 24 hours a day. And especially today with technology and, and people coming out of college today, they're more inclined to send you a text message or send you uh, an email <laughs> exactly. or to pick up the phone and actually have a conversation with you. And so um, being able to communicate effectively is really critical. I want to hit on something you spoke about, which I always found so important when I was in, in management. You have to identify the right skill sets, put the right person in the right job so they can excel at that. In doing so, are we trying to identify people's 
personality types, employee personality types, right? We have drivers, we have analytical people. Everybody brings a different personality to the to the job. How important is it to identify that employee's style to be able to communicate with them effectively? I think it's very important. I'm, I'm thinking of examples right now where I have managers that are good managers and they work very well with clients. But when it comes to coaching employees and identifying their strengths and weaknesses, um, they're a little bit too quick to give up on a person because they don't uh, perform the same way as the particular manager performed over the, you know, the duration of their career. They're, they're, their styles clash and they're quick to give up on them and say, this person is never going to work out. I need to get somebody else. Yet you could take that particular person that they wanted to get rid of, put them under a different boss that understands and recognize their talents and then maximizes the use of their talents and their personality. And they're highly successful. And so in my view here, being able to recognize what people's strengths are and their personalities really determines how successful you can be, not only as a coach or a manager, but in an organization. What if the employees you're trying to coach, you know, don't really want to be coached? I mean, I don't know how else to rephrase that, but does that make sense? Can we, can resistance dampen the success rate on this? Yeah, you're almost talking about the, the, the teenager. Um, for, for those who are parents out there listening to this, um, you, you get some employees here that are resistant to coaching or learning, or they want to only do things their way. And in those instances, um, it, it really takes a lot more effort and time to ensure that they're going to be successful. Um, but at some point, you also have to rec recognize that if you're spending too much time on one employee, um, at, at the expense of all the other employees, um, that's not good for the team or for the organization. An example I give is I once had a, a supervisor approach me as when I was the manager. So he, he was a, a supervisor a couple levels below me. And he approached me once and he said, you know, we have a special agent out here who quite frankly had the reputation of being difficult. It was really kind of what we would call on the, on the grade scale of failing, of being an F employee. He says, I, and he told me, he says, I can work with this, this agent. I can spend a lot of time with them and I'm pretty sure I can get them up to be a C player. And I said, I understand that. I said, but keep in mind, you have seven other employees that some might be C players and with a little bit of coaching, you can make them B plus or A players. But by ignoring them, what you're going to end up with is an entire team of C, C players because you're spending all your time to, you know, trying to prevent this one person from failing. It says, so you've got to find the right balance with that. That's really interesting perspective. Now, let's, let's separate managing from coaching. Management, to me, would be the day-to-day, -day, uh, I don't know, encouragement of policies and following procedures for the company and achieving the mission statement. Sure. That's what we do as a manager, right? Coaching would be the right. next level, employee encouragement, identifying specific skill sets. What if we have people that we're coaching that don't want to really participate, but not participating doesn't really fall outside your day-to-day -day management of rules? This, I think, would be beyond a teenager. This might be an actually resistant employee. How do we get through to them? Yeah, and so if they're resistant to that, what you're looking for is who is the unofficial leader that they look up to in the organization or the group. 
Um, and I've taken advantage of that in the past too, where um, people would sit, I, I would clearly recognize that you could bring in a person who is charismatic, um, who um, has significant experience and that the group would look up to. They may be embarrassed or may not want to come to the boss. They may not want to go to a manager. They may not want to go to the head of the organization. But if you have a peer, a person who's a peer with them that they really respect and look up to, they become the de facto leader of that group. And so establishing who those de facto leaders, leaders are in a group or a team or an organization is just as important as finding the right manager or the right coach. And sometimes what you see there is someone who is resistant to coaching by management is very open to being coached by someone they respect who is one of their peers because they've done it in their in their their mindset in their eyes is this is a person who's done it very successfully in the past they'd rather learn from them and so that becomes an important point in developing good organization all that fascinating more, conversation about compelling coaching thanks so much for coming on security management highlights my friend and we look forward to carrying on the conversation my pleasure chuck thank you